welcome to another episode of The Greatest Pod, where we discuss and debate what makes something great. I'm Ed Greer. I'm Ron Swallow. And I am producer Bill. And today we will conclude our Red hopes. <laughs> <laughs> we'll conclude our series on the greatest writers in comics. Um, and just right before we get started, uh, the last episode, we talked about a lot of people who kind of propped these companies up, these people who like wrote comics for a company or a few companies for a long time, the so-called jobbers who kept, you know, keep keep everything running on time, the Peter Davids, the uh, Kurt Busiek's to it, even to a certain degree, the Mark Wade's. But there is like a Titanic jobber that I do not believe we talked about and definitely didn't talk about in detail. I know for a fact. Mm-hmm. And that's Denny O'Neill, man. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Denny O'Fucking-Neal. We got this long and didn't talk about, and, like, and we even talked about, uh, we even talked about some Neil Adams shit and stuff. Yeah. It's always, you know, edging around Denny O'Neill, but he was the one writing those stories that made Eastwood look so fine, to quote uh, the the Fall Guy lyrics, that, that made Neil Adams be able to draw that dope shit. Denny O'Neill was writing those stories, and he goes on to be a Titanic editor over every Batman event that you've ever seen and loved. So it's like it's he's a Titanic figure, and I just wanted us to really give him his props for being so called. I mean, he and Neil Adams are credited with uh, not only the hard traveling heroes with Green uh, Lantern and Green Arrow, but the so called um, toughening and the darkening of Batman from the '60s um, show representation of him to a creature of the night they're credited with that well and really codifying the bronze age superman too which is the one that's really the touchstone Mm. for like grant morrison's work um i think denny o'neill doesn't get forgotten but like he became such a successful editor um and such a long tenured editor that it's like it's easy to kind of look past a lot of that quote-unquote jobber work that he did you know mostly in the 70s and early 80s Mm -hmm. but I mean, the guy really was uh, a visionary like he would. I mean, more than, you know, darkening and grittying up Batman, which eventually gave us Frank Miller. um, He was the one who brought back the Joker as a murderous psychopath like he D. Caesar Romero the Joker. Yeah. That is a great point. Uh, And that's like uh, every every Joker you get in the movies is because of that, basically. Yeah, I mean, every modern incarnation of the Joker, especially um, and particularly the Jack Nicholson Joker, I mean, everything from his appearance to his mannerisms, everything about that character was ripped from the pages of Denny O'Neill comics. Yeah, good, good, good point, Ed. I'm glad you uh, brought Denny O'Neill up because that would be a sad one to forget. Absolutely. Uh, so and and just the editing work on shit like No Man's Land and stuff like overseeing everything from 60s shit all the way up to No Man's Land, introducing Cassandra Kane and shit. Yeah, it's just such a long run that it just has to be like respected. And he was like a um, a keeper of the torch of like what Batman meant for years. You know what I'm saying? Like that's yeah. kind of that's kind of the big deal that I wanted to kind of get to that. uh that and a bunch of other characters, but you know, he gets a lot of credit for Batman and being part of the Batman offices or whatever, but like he was over so much dope shit. So I just wanted to give him his props and uh RIP. Yeah. Recently died, but uh, he was. Absolutely. You brought up somebody uh, that I thought was a uh, good bill. Well, Grant Morrison was someone that we touched on last episode. And if I'm not mistaken, we said 
he's a good transition point into talking about the modern age of comics writers, which is what we're endeavoring to do today. And, you know, without retreading too much of what we talked about last episode, Grant Morrison's JLA, to me anyway, is really the first work of the modern age of comics. And a lot of people will credit that um, to sort of the one-two punch of the authority and the ultimates uh, written by Warren Ellis and Mark Miller, respectively, which were both kind of these, I mean, the authority preceded 9-11, but like both or both um, series really embodied, you know, the approach to superheroes in a post 9-11 reality. But without the cynicism, Grant Morrison was doing widescreen comics a couple of years before those guys cut their teeth. And I still return to the collected editions of that Morrison and Howard Porter JLA run. It was long as hell, first of all. I, I, Morrison wrote damn near 50 issues, um, all of them bangers. And it really reset the board from kind of the wild experimentation, a lot of it, especially for DC, kind of flailing and failing in the 90s, creating new versions of Batman and Superman and Aquaman and replacing people and coming up with gritty modern takes on Golden Age heroes. They had been doing this stuff for most of the 90s, trying to compete with Image. And Grant Morrison comes in and plants his flag in the sand with JLA. And it's just, nope, these are the iconic, godlike versions of all your biggest and best characters. And we are telling stories where the world is ending every damn issue. And God damn, did he make it work? And, and to me, that sort of post-deconstructionist post take on superheroes is really what kicked off this modern age. Yeah, 100%. Uh, also, who's the artist he, uh, oh, he worked with a lot uh, uh, in the JLA run? Well, it, Howard Porter drew the majority yeah. of JLA, but... Uh, I think you're thinking of Frank Quitely. Who, uh, yes, the all-star mm, Superman. Yes, and Morrison first worked out with him on Batman the Scottish... Can well, I shouldn't say that. Morrison first worked on mainstream DC with him in Batman the Scottish Connection, I believe. But Morrison and Quitely originally teamed up on Flex Mentallo, um, which came out in the early 90s but was little heralded at the time. Uh, Morrison's Invisibles and, and Doom Patrol, uh, Flex Mantello spun out of Doom Patrol, were um, sort of his big post. Animal Man was his breakthrough. Yep. And he broke the fourth wall and was kind of heralded as a, a younger Alan Moore. And then Doom Patrol and Invisibles were kind of his quasi-indie pre-Vertigo Vertigo books. Um, and Flex Mantello was sort of a piece with that work. And that was where that partnership with Frank Whiteley began. JLA Earth 2, which we looked at in depth when Ed and I did the Frank Whiteley um, sort of career retrospective, find it on YouTube. Um, it's given us All-Star Superman, and it's given us one that I know is big for both Ed and I. And actually, Ron, I'm not sure if you've read this, but the the Dick Grayson, Damian Wayne, Batman and Robin relaunch, which was part of Morrison's much larger, grander Batman epic that he wrote through most of the 2000s. I have not read uh, all of that yet. I've only read bits and pieces where I got to pick up, you know, a, a trade that was around or whatever. It's uh, pretty great, though. 
Yeah. And, you know, and we've said we've we've spilled a bunch of ink on Frank Whiteley, but I don't know, man. I You know, for me, comics writing nowadays in this modern era kind of begins and ends with Grant Morrison. So in a lot of ways, this conversation is going to be diminishing returns from here. <laughs> well, me. I mean, not the thing the thing about it is Grant Morrison introducing just it's more than taking the character seriously. It's more like, OK. They are real, but their reality is not our reality. So they're real as hell in their reality. Mm. And like the double whammy of that is like so inventive. You know, you feel like, ah, wow, this is a place where this can happen. And these are some of the most imaginative things that could happen in this world where anything can happen. And it's very exemplified by like the fact that Superman just has like a commando room full of shit that could fuck even him up. Mm-hmm. Just it, it, he's the only one who's qualified to protect it, so he has the most dangerous things to him near him at all times. At all times, yeah. <laughs> in his house, you know what I mean? It's just so funny, dude. There's all these kind of just and, and uh, he feeds, you know, the sun eater. We've talked, we've we've blown uh, all star Superman a lot, but like yeah. the toys and the pets that a super god like he would have. And uh, then speaking of super gods, that was a book that uh, Grant Morrison wrote about just comic book theory basically yeah and it's it's really it's a really great read it's one of those things that i checked out like maybe six seven times for the library you know what i mean just like yeah. you're kind of addicted to having it in your house and you're just like and it's almost like it's different than buying it it's claiming it again <laughs> you know yeah, what yeah, I'm yeah. <laughs> well and it's it's good you bring that up because i think one of the things that really defines morrison as different from those that preceded him is that he he was by no means the first writer to approach writing superhero comics as a literary exercise. You know, we talked at length about Frank Miller and Alan Moore in our last um, in our last episode and how that was really a break from the tradition of comics sort of being this disposable soap opera. But the thing that that Morrison brings to it. I, I don't know how to put this other than like a drug-fueled existential mind. And, <laughs> and there's like, there's there's a reason why pretty much nobody can write a comic like Grant Morrison. It's because he's just wired really, really weirdly. And chalk that up to drugs if you want. I think the drugs are more of a symptom than a cause. But like, this is a guy who you can tell spends most of his waking hours with huge cosmic philosophical existential things running through his head at all times. And he just uses comics as a way to explore all that stuff that he's obsessed with anyway. And that translates into a reading experience that at least for me is really only rivaled by Alan Moore, who kind of does the same thing, but with more of like a knowing wink and a smirk. Like there's like Alan Moore always feels a little bit like he's in on the joke when he's writing comics. Whereas Grant Morrison is just like, I'm going to go and float out there in the eighth dimension and like fucking come with me if you want, man. So quick pause for an editor's note. We are very aware Grant Morrison uses they, them pronouns. Uh, I apologize because I made it a point to try to use those pronouns and I find myself slipping. So rather than cutting all this out of the podcast and redoing all of it, 
I am going to apologize here for what has been said and for any slip-ups I may have in the future. I have all the respect in the world for people's pronouns, and Grant Morrison, as said, is they, them. All right. So moving on, I, I just feel like the that personal take, right, it's not just your personal take on Daredevil and wouldn't it be cool if Daredevil did this? It was more like, this is what I'm concerned about in my life and in existence. These are like the big questions that vex me as a person and I'm going to put it down on the page. Neil Gaiman started the game with Sandman and then nary more than maybe three, four years later, Morrison picks up the baton and runs with it directly into mainline DC universe. And there's something very interesting about that. And on top of that, taking small, weird characters and making them important and making them part of the universe in a way that makes everyone like enjoy it, but then stepping into bigger characters and bringing the same mentality from those smaller characters as they they had for the same with for those bigger characters makes it just that much more beautiful and gives everyone coming up the chance to start doing the same thing to do their own original stuff and on top of that take other characters who are you know like more popular or or underground and trying to bring them up and take them seriously while answering those their own existential questions it really gave permission for the growth of comics, in my opinion. Yes, and, or maybe yes, but. I think that also <laughs> had negative ramifications. Okay, Because fair. in a lot of ways, that back-to-basics approach, that idea of let's take all the, the gold that we can find from the gold and silver bronze age of comics and just embrace it, and, and in places where we can't find gold, let's create in that spirit is a large part of what drove the kind of navel-gazing rut that we got into with things like the return of Barry Allen and the return of Hal Jordan and the dissolution of Spider-Man's marriage and all these things that started to happen in the early 2000s that were meant to quote-unquote classicize, like bring back the classic idea of what these comics and these universes were that I think lost the thread of Morrison's inventiveness and instead really relied more on either the perceived or actual goodwill of longtime readers just wanting a more celebratory approach. Interesting. I mean, I mean, I, I definitely can get that in regards to, I mean, the one thing that, that keeps me coming back to, um, Morrison as one of these thinkers that that mines the past and really does something with it rather than just regurgitating it is like uh, the Batman of like Mars or whatever, where he's like, they got that stupid ass, yeah, he's got that stupid ass, like uh, uh, kind of Harlequin or whatever clownish, uh, like a clown, like a French clown. I've not know? read this. This sounds <laughs> dude, the, the, uh, dude, Batman has this ridiculous, like basically in, I think the 50s. There was a yeah. story where like he he went to Mars and all this crazy shit happened and he had a weird uniform on. Basically, Morrison goes, no, 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 no. That's this personality that Batman built inside of himself. So if his mind ever basically broke, he would have this 
fail-safe personality, but come out and knows how to kick ass and take names and is all weird and wears this fucked up uniform and would freak everybody out. And that's the person that's going to have to like solve the case of what happened to Bruce Wayne's brain is this weird, fucked up, incredible Hulk version of Batman that he mined from a 50s goofy story where Batman basically, basically actually went to Mars or some, did some weird shit. You know what I mean? This the inventiveness of going back to a weird, dumb 50s story. Uh, and excuse me if it's 61 or something. Right. And just mining that for that idea and trying to make it make sense in the mythicness of this universe. Be realistic in this weird universe. Especially because you know that whoever wrote that comic at the time was like, hey, what if Batman went to Mars? Yeah, give like him a, the only like, concept. Give him a rainbow <laughs> costume. Kids will like that if that's all it was. Yeah. <laughs> but that's it, awesome. And it's, it's funny because Morrison themselves will say, like, it's not so much about just trying to find nostalgia. It's about trying to dissect, like, what is the primal human thought process that leads somebody to go, ah, Batman goes to Mars and he tur- he puts on a rainbow colored costume and suddenly is acting all weird. Like, yes, that is just a throwaway thing that somebody would create on a lark, but yeah. like, why? And it's, mm-hmm. it's that one level deeper of mining that mm-hmm. gives Morrison stories such a juice. And, I would argue, you know, people like Jeff Johns. Um, Jeff Johns, I think, is probably the most egregious, let's call it, perpetrator of this in the modern era. It it doesn't have that. You know what I mean? It's like mm. those stories are less concerned about, let's dismantle the human psyche until we arrive at cosmic truth and more about, Let's dismantle these stories until we find the most obscure references and see if we can make them make sense. You know, mm-hmm. yeah. And it's so interesting that uh, you guys uh, feel the way you feel about that because uh, after after we talked about you know these various comic book artists and stuff, I looked up you know people's opinions on Jeff Johns and there's some real lovers of him. And now I'm realizing that it must have to do with people who really want that obscure reference stuff. The stuff that makes them feel special, like, oh, I'm one of the few people who understands what this reference is. So that's yeah. interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I don't I don't know that Jeff Johns deserves much more discussion in this uh rundown sure. of sure. greatest comic book writers. Fired. I go I go to his store and buy comics sometimes. I'm gonna listen, get double taxed. <laughs> that dude, no, listen, that dude has done a shit ton for the medium. He was sort of the first person, arguably before even Kevin Feige, to really be reaching out to try to build bridges between the comics and multimedia projects. He had Richard Donner come in and write this great Superman story in like 2004 or five or something. Like he had deep ties in the entertainment industry. And now, you know, he's a producer, writer, showrunner. And he also steered DC through for better or for worse, a lot of what they did from about 2006 to 2016 or so. So like the dude is an absolutely monumental figure in the industry and did a lot to change things. I think the jury's out on whether or not those things were good. Fair. fair. (laughs) So um, to bring up somebody else, I guess also a showrunner 
uh, type of person who started in comics and still calls themselves a comic book artist before they call them or a comic book writer before they call themselves anything else. How do we feel about Mark Millar or Miller? Hmm. This one's yeah, more complicated. Uh, Ed, yeah, you you it. go, Ed. You go. <laughs> no, yeah. dude. I I've been I've been spoiling for this. I've yeah. been I've been a, a rat in a cage, uh, <laughs> like because I think Mark Miller is the perfect example of somebody who kind of can't get to where Morrison goes. So it's like mm. if you were chilling out with Morrison and Morrison just took off and you grabbed the hem of their garment as they pulled you up into the stratosphere and you got scared, you got scared somewhere right around Pluto or something. You got scared. And you were like, we're leaving the fucking solar system. I have to root myself. In- I, I, I got to go. And you let go. And you're right on the edge and you're not quite in the solar system of regular shit and you're not in this rarefied air. So you're above regular crap, but you're not necessarily in rarefied air. What do you do in that space? And those are Mark Miller's ideas. Mark Miller's ideas are mm. right. That's why they're so perfect to be uh, series and fucking uh, not long form series, but like little movies. And uh, the I, in theory, they would be great for series that are very short, like the two to yeah. three seasons that Netflix would prefer. Right. It, it's very they, they're really good for that. He's the and perfect for, man for the job <laughs> at right yeah. now. Well, and I was going to say, for those who don't know, you know, Mark Miller um, famously created a whole line of independent comics under the image banner and then essentially sold his company intellectual property library. I don't know exactly what you want to call it to Netflix in a, in a big overall deal, got mm-hmm. paid and now creates comics exclusively for Netflix to adapt and market in other ways. I think it's interesting what you say, Ed, because Miller, I think it is Miller. It might be Millar. But yeah, it's, say, it, it, it's, Miller. it's Miller. That's how they say it over there. But like for our 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 eyes, we just can't do the AR. As, my, as brain, my brain can't, can't do it. Do I say it. milk I and I say Miller. <laughs> <laughs> but so his career started alongside Grant Morrison. And with the authority, mm-hmm. right? Well, no, that's what I was going to say. So Miller originally wrote Superman Adventures, which was uh, a Superman the Animated Series comic book adaptation Mm -hmm. with some uncredited input from greatest Superman writer of all time, Grant Morrison. And Miller broke into mainstream DC with the character Aztec. A Z T E K mm-hmm. co-created God. with Grant with Morrison, Grant Morrison. Yep. as part of that big JLA run. That's mm-hmm. right. And so, you know, a lot of people say that, well, uh, some people say that all of the really good, you know, constructive classic superhero takes in those early works were Morrison rubbing off on Miller. And then Miller goes on from there. Um, he does some other indie stuff, but his first big splashy book is taking over for Warren Ellis, who we also need to talk about, but we're talking about Miller right now, on The Authority. Yeah. And and ever since, Miller has pretty much just been doing riffs on The Authority. Riffs on that idea of like high concept, widescreen, action-driven comics with... I'm going to just say it kind of thinly 
wrought characters, but who have some very sort of primal archetypal things in their makeup that make them very easy to root for or root against. And then goes to a whole other level when he creates Kick-Ass, gets it optioned, gets that gets made into a movie, the movie's a hit, and from there it's kind of off to the races. He then goes on to create Kingsman, that gets optioned as well. You know, part of this conversation is that he has a long-standing working relationship with Matthew Vaughn, who directed most of these movies, um, and who broke onto the scene in movies with Layer as the director of Layer Cake with Daniel Craig, and has since become a huge force in Hollywood. Those guys are apparently good friends, and you know, obviously longstanding partners and uh, creative partners. So, you know, Mark Miller, I think, is sort of the template for what you see more recent guys like your Matt Fractions, your Brian K. Vaughns trying to become um, in that he did some blockbuster comics, hailed as sort of a visionary there, has some quick success with Hollywood, and then essentially just turns into half writer, half idea machine, just churning stuff out. And, you know, there it, it was auspicious beginnings for Miller. Sorry, I'm rambling, but like, I also have some thoughts. It like Miller's <laughs> beginnings were good. I, I think kick ass yeah. good in both concept and execution, his stuff yeah. on the authority, a little bit shaky compared to Warren Ellis, but also really interesting. Um, the Kingsman stuff, a really great reinvention of the spy franchise. And just really, really quickly, really quickly, just because Wanted, which was the thing that started this whole oh, thing. thank you. Yes. Wanted, right. Wanted got made and, and McAvoy was in it and like uh, Morgan Freeman and Angelina Jolie. I was just crazy. This is, this is I nuts. loved that movie, by the way. But, and I know I shouldn't. I know it's supposed to be bad, but, th- but th- I fucking nobody, loved it. I, I'm not. I'm not here to judge you. You know what I'm saying? Uh, um, Jesus or the universe or some mushrooms or something's going to do that at the end. It's fine. Uh, but I am saying that in the comic book version, I'll judge my fucking self because the comic book version. We talk about thinly veiled uh, stuff. You were talking about um, uh, Bill. There are thinly veiled conservative attitudes all the way through mm. every single thing he's ever done. Full stop. And. Yeah. I don't, you know what I'm saying? I'm not, I'm not trying to say I don't mind it. I see it and I avoid it a little bit. I try to avoid it a little bit like dog crap. And I look at other things in it and the wanted story has, dude, they even talk about uh, the main character is mad that he has to answer to a black woman boss. He's like specifically mad at that. Like, why am I answering to my black boss? This is trash. So that's, that's in there and I'm acknowledging it. Now let's get this macro out. The whole fucking story of this peon that's girlfriend's getting fucked by his best friend and he's just this shit bomb and he goes to work and he's all crummy and he has this super skill of of shooting stuff, but it has to be awakened in him through this training process that he undergoes by force when he gets kidnapped and beaten till he realizes his skills. And then his dad, he they revealed to him that his dad was a super duper assassin, the best that ever was. They give him a version of that guy's suit. This dude used to shoot people from four miles away, judging from the Earth's gravitational field and bare metric pressure you know what i'm saying (laughs) this dude was ill as fuck and that was his dad and he has those skills innate with him like a superpower and the world is a john wick world where like when you go down into the john wick underground place 
There's a guy literally made of toxic waste and shit. There's a super genius from another dimension. There's a fucking a super athletic chick who would run up walls and claw your face out. There's a such and such, and they're all in this gangster pad doing shit because they're the villains, and the villains won the superhero war. Way back in the days, like the 70s, the villains got together and beat the hero's ass full stop, killed them all, and now they run the world, period. And they go around doing whatever the fuck they want to do. They have crime binges. They go shoot up a police station if they want to. These people run the world full stop. And there is a war between them that our young hero gets involved in. Now compare that to this fucking bullshit that was in that movie with you know, yep, shooting around true. the corner and all this dumb shit. So I'm just saying, like, it's look at they it. didn't even they didn't have the bullets. vision. Okay, but they didn't have the vision. What I'm saying, you know what I'm saying? They I didn't know, have the I vision know. to do what the fuck I'm talking about. Because right no, now, right. that would sell like hotcakes, especially the black boss part. But uh, but like, <laughs> but the, <laughs> the, the whole shit would sell like hotcakes right now, dude. If they realized that vision of a super society and what happens when, like, you kind of the villains are so villainous and they're so against this young guy that you're rooting for that him overthrowing them and becoming them sort of is like, it's the secret of my success with guns or something. You know what I'm saying? It's like a, it's like a triumphant thing for you to see him take over the world with his black girlfriend, notably, uh, and, and, and shoot, shoot everybody and be the badass. It's kind of an amazing story. It's like ready player one for edge Lords. <laughs> <laughs> that's actually, a, I'd say that's not a bad comparison. Yeah. Um, I think so, it's interesting too. Last thing on Miller, real quick. Sure. Um, to your point, Ed, about you know, there's a lot of almost not veiled, thinly veiled stuff. Miller also shares something in common with Jeff Johns that I personally don't like, which is like a real fetishization of ultraviolence. Um mm. There, like he goes out of his way, and I would say Jeff Johns does this a lot as well. He goes out of his way to just make things as gory and oftentimes sort of as nihilistic as possible. Like famously, mm -hmm. they couldn't adapt all of Kick Ass because I think the villain like intentionally rapes Kick Ass's girlfriend in order to just like piss him off. And it's like, what are you yeah. doing, man? What like, are why doing? are you doing that shit? Yeah, leave that, leave that out. You write that idea down for a second, and you go, no, that's horrible. Nah, this is dumb. It. Yeah, this is not Death Wish, you know. Yeah, and that's what I'm saying. Like using uh, chick characters to be these props for dude yep. characters. There's a lot of that, and he overcompensates in his later work. There's a lot of chicks who just like kick so much ass. They're just the best at all at everything all the time. Yay! But right. uh, you know, so th there's this you know weird teeter totter. But the point is, uh, yeah, like you're saying, idea machine, and right up under, like he's in that he's wedged in that crawl space. Between Warren Ellis and Grant Morrison. There's like See, a diehard crawl space to me. That's really interesting because I was going to say, I think Warren Ellis sits above him as a writer and below him as an asshole, as, as a person. You know what I mean? It's like <laughs> everything we were just talking about with Miller, Warren Ellis is far more Grant Morrison in terms of inventiveness and and um, just enjoyable, experimental, very technically proficient writing. 
But then you can't talk about him nowadays without talking about the fact that he also, by all accounts, is an online creep who, you know, used the fact that he was he became sort of a nerd celebrity and specifically became a nerd celebrity in the same way Joss Whedon did by writing a lot of empowering progressive things and then used that to serially um, uh, mistreat women. So that kind of sucks. Oh, does that yeah. suck? <laughs> well, you know, you it know, just has it, to be said. It does. It's terrible. It's no, just, you're right. It's, it's, it's like it, what's funny about it. It's like the kind of superpower that he would come up with in a comic. <laughs> Like this guy, dude, wrong, it, yeah. dude, anything he types to a chick, they got to believe. Think of the power that could manifest. Oh, the, we got to get on the global frequency and stop this guy from spreading this meme. Because if this gets out there, you know, people are going to be texting chicks, all, all types of crazy stuff. To, to, people texting people, all kind of crazy shit. And there's going to be zombies going around doing all this fucked up shit. So it's like, that's the type of thing that he would like come up with. And that's what's interesting about uh, uh, Ellis to me is that he's not above doing basically a Fu Manchu riff at the beginning of the authority. He's not above that. He's going, okay, what if there was a Fu Manchu and what Mm -hmm. would Fu Manchu really want to do? Make a bunch of copies of him and beat everybody's ass. Yep. And that's what happens for the first four issues of the authority. A guy on an Island makes a bunch of copies of him and his brothers. uh, And they run out and they try to destroy the world. They're flying through buildings you know what I'm saying? They flew through the Kremlin and the, somebody yeah. has to stop people from flying through the Kremlin on their own power. And it's the authority. They're the only ones who can. And it's just set up that this is this is this world. That's why I'm so excited for an authority thing. But I know they can't they can't do it like they did in 99, baby. They're going to have to do all these acquiescences to shit. And I'm just thinking, just do a world where there's no superheroes and the goddamn authority runs that world. And since you guys are DC Dude. at the very end, there's some weird multiverse shit. Or something, but give me a world where these dudes are the only superpowers. Dude, I'm telling you, just reading some tea leaves, though, this is a little bit of a tangent. The thing that we said they would never do, I think James Gunn might be doing, which is Mm. essentially establishing a world where there are no superheroes as such, but the authority is essentially run as like a state-sponsored super team that mm. is serving like a fascistic state. And I think they are going for that reason. They are going to be the villains of that Superman movie. That might Whoa. actually be the fucking case. Dude, <laughs> are you fucking, if that happens, that's a great idea. I hope I, I'm just Look, telling I know you, like, James Gunn, you're listening that, right now. If you weren't thinking about that, just do that. <laughs> but, but so, so the fact that, and pay bill. The, the first storyline that they're telling is this creature commandos, which seems to be a period piece about the army rounding up all of these supernatural beings to use them in war. And the fact that the whole um, Task Force X Amanda Waller thing is going to continue through into the DCU. It feels like that's the world he's setting up that like the government has created a monopoly on super people. And in so doing, it's become this sort of corrupting fascistic thing. And in that world, Superman can be what he originally was created to be, which is sort of like the socialist champion of the people. And like, dude, I'm just saying, if they fucking do that, 
I, I'll cry in the theater. I'm, I'm, I, I, I'm not even kidding. Because then it's also an adaptation of what's so funny about Truth, Justice, and the American Way, which mm -hmm. was Joe Kelly, who we're probably not going to talk about, but props to him for writing essentially the DC Universe response to what Warren Ellis did with the authority by creating a DC Universe version of the authority and having Superman have to take them down. So now that DC owns the authority, it seems like that's what they might be setting up. And that's why, first of all, there's so many other superheroes being cast in Superman. And then the authority is the movie after Superman, where it might be establishing a reformed authority after Superman kicks the fascist's ass in that first Superman movie. I'm just, I'm hoping. But anyway, all that to say... We should, we, I don't think you can overstate how fucking awesome the early part of Warren Ellis's body of work is because yeah. Transmetropolitan, the authority, um, and then he does all of this shit like Freak Angels, like Global Frequency, um, mm -hmm. The Wake. Like all these crazy experiments, Dr. Sleepless, Future Science Jesus, like all these weird little experimental sci-fi, you know. Like the Avatar Press type shit. Avatar Press shit. And then doubles down on that by creating Planetary, one of the greatest, you know, one of the greatest comic books ever created. Um, I, it's just he did every like from the intricate universe building that starts with Stormwatch, essentially rewrites all of how the Wildstorm universe works, builds up to the authority, and then redefines sort of how superhero comics work with the authority, to, like I said, that super prolific and weird indie stuff, and then sort of the coup de grace being that, you know, what Morrison does with Batman where like, let's look back at the deep roots and figure out like how that plays with the modern day. Warren Ellis did that with all of Pulp Fiction in Planetary and just created an absolute masterpiece. Um, I don't know, man. Like it's, it's tough. I, I don't think Warren Ellis is cause then he goes, he does next wave agents of hate at Marvel you know, he created the Castlevania anime and and wrote every episode of the Castlevania anime on Netflix, which is awesome. Like that motherfucker just does not miss as a creator. Unfortunately, like he just seems to suck as a person in a lot of ways. Yeah, well, Dude, and it looks so like wild. his he might be one of the few people whose career actually ended, too, because uh, each time he tries to do something, they're like, nope. People yeah. rise up and are like, hey, no, remember all the horrible things he did to uh, talk us into this stuff with a hundred women with all hundred of those women, by the way, had corroborating evidence. Oh, yeah. it wasn't, they, they had the receipts. It's like it's all the receipts. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. you know, it's it's just one of those things where it's like and it's also just goes to show you how frustrating it can be that some of the most creative people in the world can be terrible human beings pretending to be good. Or, or, or they're just like really creative in all ways, like evil creative, 
That's Super a good point. Cool, creative, you, know what? you know, you just can't turn it off. It's like, ah, I mean, man, I got to be creating. Ah. Look, I'm not trying to insult myself, but I definitely couldn't maintain a relationship with a hundred women. I definitely could not do that. I think my really? creative t- my creativity would not be big enough to do it. So, yeah, exactly. That's All right. So why you lose. No. <laughs> so now, uh, well, <laughs> so now going from that horrible person, let's talk about the most milk toast, glad handed guy around. Let's talk about Brian Michael Bendis. Because <laughs> this is so funny. I love that you guys are basically shitting on all the greatest writers of all time. No, listen, no, I, I, I'm the first one to say Brian Michael Bendis, arguably the comic book writer poster child of the modern era, arguably sure. more successful than any of the guys that we've talked about so far this episode, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but also just seems to be aggressively unproblematic, just out there showing everybody how much of a gee whiz nice guy he is at all times. <laughs> and as a somewhat cynical person, that you're really like, chaps my ass. You're like, what's in there? Uh-huh. Well, dude, you okay, read all but- these good stories. There's got to be evil in there. That's what dude, I'm saying. And on, on some real shit, I'm just going to, me personally, just I feel as though he dabbles in respectability politics on behalf of black people. You know what I'm saying? So it's like respectability politics is one of those things where it's like, okay, if you wear a suit, people will respect you more. It's like, never mind that Dr. King got shot in a fucking suit or whatever, or that, or that, or that, you know, uh, frankly, even if he didn't get shot in a suit, maybe he had his fucking robot. I don't know, but freaking somebody getting shot in or or beat up in the street in a suit just for marching or whatever. You can dress as nice as you want, cinch your tie up just right, assimilate as much as you can. You could get your head caved in, even if you do all that. But people assume that if you're more respectable, you speak well, you da 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 da, you you're immune to these things. So it's just like, yeah, he does that with some of these characters. Like he'll be like, "Why would you hate uh, Miles Morales? He's a genius. He goes to genius school. He's the best. Why would you? Why would you hate him? His dad's a cop. For Christ's sake, why? Why you? Oh, why would you hate Luke Cage? He's an ex-con." Well, here's his white wife and his nuclear family with this little kid, and he's the fucking mayor now, and he, he got the Wreckers crowbar. He he defeated a guy that Thor could, couldn't handle. See, he's good now. Uh, he, he's, he, stop it. He, yeah. he, just short, he just shaves the edges off of everything. He, like, baby-proofed the fucking Marvel Universe, in my personal opinion. And, Ooh. Uh, Ooh. and, and <laughs> it is the most successful universe that has probably ever happened. And and his contributions are all up and through those movies. For 100%. Good and well, Ill. they're all uh, up and through there. Them and the brain trust of Mark Miller, Joss Whedon. Yep, Civil War. That brain trust of all those guys killing the game as far as making the Marvel Universe what it is. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And, and again, just to run down the, the list of hits. I mean, I mean, this, I mean, the Marvel Universe and the MCU. I just want to make that distinction. I yeah. feel it. Yeah. I mean, Bendis has real indie credibility you know uh broke out with torso which was like a self-published black and white book that he wrote and drew that was a true crime book about serial killers goes on to create powers with michael avon emming a seminal seminal look at again sort of redefining how you look at superheroes essentially slapping a police procedural into a superhero world go ahead and real quick don't don't jump over jinx jinx I, was yep. uh, 
Yeah, Jinx, I read Jinx, and that was him, like, really trying hard to, like, be a cartoonist, and he is a cartoonist first, and that's the interesting thing about him. He drew his way in, because nobody's going to read his script, so he drew the things that he wrote, and then eventually he could get have partnerships with Michael Avon Oming to do all that stuff and, and all this kind of jazz, but he started himself, he was doing uh, caricatures at parties and shit. Yeah, he started as oh, a cartoonist he, for somebody that's such a huge writer. He drew his way in, which I got to love that. He's a fucking hustler, dude. I mean, like every everything you've ever heard about this guy is that he was like the first one in, last one out of every convention, shaking hands, you know, talking to every fan. Like and he talks about when he's he was starting out. It's like he obviously had a day job. And he just treated comics like a second job and he came home and he wrote and drew comics every day for at least seven hours. And like the, the guy, I, I think the best thing about him is probably his work ethic, which is not to, not to belittle his writing, but it's like, he's one of those guys who just straight up Gary Vaynerchuked his way into the center of comic books. <laughs> yeah. I think people also take umbrage at the fact that his voice became Marvel Comics voice for a while. Like the whole like, oh, yeah. oh, and that happened. And, you know, I'm not saying his humor is like that. I'm just saying this sort of like self-referential, like kind of talky across the pages, like a bunch of talking heads and stuff so that, you know, uh, frankly, some of the artists could take a break or whatever. But for mm -hmm. him, it was more like. I'm not saying he's in love with his words because I obviously love to talk and I'm in love with my own words. So I love it. But his voice is in those comics, pages and yeah. pages of people kind of batting no, sitcom-esque dialogue. Are you dissing? I was just going to say, I think that procedural television is just in that dude's veins. And I don't mm. know enough to know if like that's just what he was raised on. But it's like the way he writes – Yes, it's been compared to like he tries to have the crosstalk of like David Mamet or Quentin Tarantino, but on a comics page that's just super wordy or you're drawing too many panels or whatever. Fair. But I think more than that, he writes everything like sort of a clever Law and Order episode. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's really distilled at his early work, like Powers, Jinx, Torso. Um, yeah. But I think that carries through into everything. Mm -hmm. All that said, he be his voice infused the Marvel universe because he literally became the Stan Lee of the 21st century. Like the guy worked on every major book and after Ultimate Spider-Man, which just launched him into the stratosphere. Mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. He just became the guy at Marvel. He he was the one who rejuvenated every single one of those characters that you see in those movies, and it's not only his takes that they draw upon, but in terms of making them popular again in the books. All the original Avengers, like you already mentioned, Luke Cage, Daredevil, Jessica Jones, all those Defenders characters, yep. they were all sort of revived and recontextualized by Bendis in those mid-2000s runs that he did. And he was just writing everything for Marvel for a really long time. Yeah, and that was when Marvel made a shitload of money and then yeah. made even more money making movies from those comic books that he wrote. So And, and hey... Ultimate Spider-Man, absolute banger. Absolute banger. Awesome. Yeah, Fucking 100%. phenomenal. Yeah. Also, as far as company-wide crossovers go, Secret Invasion, which he wrote, yep. might be the best company-wide crossover ever. Yeah. 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 So, consistent voice. You know what I'm saying? So, like I said, it is um, 
he he made it safe to go back in the water of all the of us having this company identity again because I think it did get a little disparate for a while and i think if you get tired of that and hickman i guess if you don't mm. like brian michael bendis and you don't like hickman you ain't like marvel in about oh, yeah. 15 years you know what Be- i'm saying before we jump on hickman um i want to talk about matt fraction oh yeah um, I, I do too i definitely yeah. do matt fraction uh famously has a long-standing friendship and working relationship with bendis and he, matt fraction is kind of the the node in the tree that connects bendis to grant morrison because I would, for my money, Matt Fraction is the only writer whose sort of consistent inventiveness and like clarity of vision is comparable to Morrison. And he, Fraction is a little bit cheekier. He's a little bit more comedy first. He's a little bit more like we're we're playing, we're having fun here. Mm-hmm. But in things like Sex Criminals, Casanova. Um, some of the mainstream stuff, well, a lot of the mainstream stuff that he did in the Marvel Universe, just a consistently fantastic writer. Um, and and one who I, I, I gather he's transitioned into more of like a TV writing consulting role. So he's less prominent in comics nowadays. But there was a stretch there where he was he was very prolific. And it was only probably around probably less than 10 years, but it was around the ascension of Bendis. Um, where I, he was probably the best writer working in comics for a while. Like he, he mm-hmm. was killing it. No, oh, that, that Hawkeye jazz and, oh, and yeah. frankly, yeah, Hawkeye jazz dude, uh, the whole thing that they based the series on and uh, along with David Aha's art. And, uh, and I, I, yeah, I wish we mentioned more artists at this whole thing, but hell, you know, you we're talking writers. Once. We're talking yeah. writers. Yeah. Yeah. I know. But like, sometimes it's just like, they get so much credit for everything. I know. Like, Jesus Christ. Okay, I just wanted to make that point, but yeah. No, uh, you know and, what? And Let's talk about that yeah. for a second. I actually think that's important to talk about a little bit. Well, because- especially in his case, because David Aha, was also on Immortal Iron Fist and then making me care about mm. Hawkeye and, Iron, and Fist. Iron Fist. Get the fuck out of here as far as feats. You know, comic book kids always want to talk about feats. Those are two feats for your fucking ass. Oh, yeah. 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 The, the, there's a, there is a correlation between an artist and a writer in comic books that almost make them similar to each other because the storytelling is so important in the art style and art portraying everything from emotion to uh, the the atmosphere of of the world that you're living in, all of that stuff is so important and tied in. And the writers do seem to get a lot more credit uh, when it comes to comic books than artists. And I look, not saying that the writers aren't important. We're obviously doing multiple episodes on the greatest writers. But I do want to bring that. Do want to, I did? I think that's a great point, Ed. That that uh, sometimes those artists combining with the writer is something that's bringing up the writer as much as uh, the artist. Well, just looking at somebody like that, just as a, it's not even a detour. I think they're all in the same family. Yeah, Brubaker on Sleeper mm. for Wildstorm is one of those comics that I feel is even more, way more inventive in my personal opinion than something like even that wanted that I pitched earlier, the comic book version of it, the comic book version of the wild storms, like wild storms, Spider-Man level spy guys that were part of doing missions for various factions of the Illuminati that mm. set up him and Sean Phillips doing sleeper 
formed a super team that continues to do graphic novels to this day. They do mm. it on their own schedule. They do it in their own vision. And like you were saying, Ron, the artist has so much, um, does so much heavy lifting to get across your words. So if you have a perfect synthesis with that artist and they do exactly what you tell them and when you, and when they do something that you don't tell them, it's way better than you ever thought every time you stick to that guy like glue and you make a machine. And that's the, going back to Mark Miller. He tried to do that with so many artists because he has so many ideas yeah. and he just, he, he splits everything with those guys 50, 50. So if Frank quietly takes two years to draw something, homeboy can't get his, can't get his money out, but he's, but he's okay because he pays them out of his own money mm. while they're, while they're working. And then we, we all get it back because we, we own it together when it gets sold to Netflix and blah, blah, blah. So it's like, he has had a whole machine, but like Brubaker and fucking Sean Phillips are a machine making graphic novels to this day. And they don't have to make a billion issues of pants on the outside of his uh, pants, man. They don't have to do that. They can make all these different worlds, all these different stories, spy thrillers, crime novel shit, uh, type Jim Thompson type grifters novels that as comic books that are, are, are 12 issues. Sometimes fucking uh, uh, Eldritch horror set mm-hmm. in the forties in the movie industry type shit. They are doing all kind of stuff, man. And I just love, I just love that machine. Yeah. I'll confess. I have not read enough of uh, that modern Brubaker stuff um, to, to comment on it, but I love the fact that he's doing it for all the reasons you just mentioned it. Boom. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, I, I, and go ahead. I think on that note, it's interesting to talk about writer artist pairings because I think there are some writers, I'm thinking of one guy in particular, and I will name him, but I think there are some writers who sort of become industry recognized, you know, guys who maybe should be on this list of greatest writers, but I feel like they're not because the artist does more than the writer. And specifically, this might be controversial, I'm talking about Scott Snyder. I knew you were going there because <laughs> Greg Capullo yes. is dragging this guy's fucking corpse all yes. up and down the block, dude. Thank it's you. ridiculous. Thank you. Scott Snyder hooked up with Greg Capullo by his own admission uh, early on was super put off by the fact that Capullo wouldn't follow his scripts and just did his own thing and then realized, oh, this is so much better if I just let him do his own thing. Yeah. And and look, that's classic Marvel method shit. So it's not like that is scandalous, but like uh, Scott Snyder is a mid writer, man. He tries to do Grant Morrison level shit and fails. He tries to do Bendis level, like quippy fast talking shit and fails. He tries to do like big universe architecting shit like Jeff Johns and fails. And like, when I say fails, it's not like he fails spectacularly, but everything just turns out like it's good. You know, what was great, the art, but the story was good. And like, that's how I feel about Scott Snyder. Even, even the stuff that's supposed to be good. Like, honestly, you could, you could be a good guy, Ron, just stay out of this. Now I'm just, I'm just joking. Jump in, in, a, in no, a second, but no, I'm just ahead. saying stuff that's supposed to be good. Like court of owls. Sure. They're yeah. creepy owl masks. And there is a bunch of sequences that Scott Snyder definitely wrote but that are so well drawn by Greg Capullo. Like the, the sequence where Batman's like going to die. He's like in a tomb and he does, and all the walls are white. He doesn't, he doesn't even know where he is. And, there, and it's a giant labyrinth and there's all these owl dudes watching him. And, and it's, it's so creepy. It's so awesome. But like Greg Capullo drew the fuck out of that. 
And I think that even then, Court of Owls is better than a lot of those old ass Rachel Ghoul stories or sure. any of the Morrison stuff where Morrison is like telling you how Batman got trained and doing certain things. It yeah. just isn't. It isn't. I don't that's think it's I'm on saying. that level. No, I don't that's think it's I'm on saying. that level. Here's the thing people really love Court of Owls, but they love the gimmick of the Court of Owls with exactly. the mask and everything because literally, Grant Morrison, before Scott Snyder took over Batman, Grant Morrison did that exact same concept with the black glove. Like, yeah, that yeah, whole idea yeah. of like we're an underground society of rich weirdos who are just dedicated to, um, fucking toppling Batman as like a little canard amongst our other evil doings. That was the fucking black glove. And that story was better. And then the only thing that makes the court of owls stick is the visual, the creepy mask and the talon guy who's like trained by them to be their zombie. And even that idea, the fact that he's like a fucking zombie and they keep him in a fucking coffin, all that shit is stupid as hell. But it looks cool because Capullo draws the fuck out of it. Yeah. I mean, just I got to be honest with you. I'm looking through some Scott Snyder books. And look, you guys know I'm not a a giant DC head. I've read a good amount of DC, but not as much as you guys. And I don't think there's almost anything that I've read that I've enjoyed. Maybe Batman Rebirth, I think I read at some point. And even then... I don't feel like I remember it well enough to tell you I liked it. So maybe well, that's, that's a pretty the, good that's indication. That's the stuff we're talking about with Greg Capullo. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mean, well, Batman coming back and Greg Capullo just did – he just did a yeoman's job on that stuff. And I just great. feel – I feel like in the end, you're – he just does it. The the Batman who laughs. Did he make that up? Yeah, that was Scott Snyder. Yeah. See, you can tell it's got this Snyder stink on. It. I'm sorry, oh, that's just a sucks. running theme. It's a running the theme. Batman <laughs> who the Batman who laughs sucks. It's dope as shit as a visual. The dope as shit as a visual. A judge death that is Batman from another universe. Sign me up. Sure. But this particular just I hate this idea of Batman and Joker fusion. I hate it. This yeah. this that, that they're inseparable, that they're two halves of a coin, that you know, it, it it just it's almost like I want to throttle the fucking Batman 89 people. Like, don't do this, don't bring yeah. this in here. Cause like this, hey, we we did this to each other stuff. I never saw it that way until that time. And for some reason, that little that little brain worm has crawled into everybody's fucking cerebellums and is making us think that Batman needs the Joker or there are two halves of something that the dark side and light side of the force or something. It's a balance. Batman fights everybody. He fights other fucking superheroes. He's not hung up on some fucking clown, dude. Don't do this to my boy. Let him be yeah. promiscuous in his ass whoopings. Don't have him concentrate on this purple suited fuck all the time. They are not two halves of any coin. It's it's an idiotic idea, in my well, personal watch, opinion. Watch this transition. Well, if we want to talk about a writer who has brought a ton of light to other members of the Bat family and members of Batman's rogues gallery, let's talk about Gail Simone. Ooh. Yes. Well, when you guys were talking about the, the team jazz, um, I was thinking Gail Simone really supplied task force x suicide squad with all this personality they're milking to this day that james gunn is milking for to get in his foot into dc like this 
that's Gail Simone shit, making Catman kind of cool. You know what I mean? Things of this nature. She she did that. Oh, giving Bane any personality at all, mm-hmm. which, you know, we haven't really seen in movies, but we've seen in spades in like the Harley Quinn TV show and, and to a certain extent in some of the other Batman stuff. But that fucking Secret Six that she yes. wrote for 50, 60 issues, whatever it is, yeah. that is great team comics. I mean, that... The, the stuff we were talking about with Morrison, where it's like, let's go back to basics. Let's go back to the classic stuff, but make it work for the modern audience. Simone doesn't write like Morrison, but she did that with that Secret Six series. Mm-hmm. Yep. And uh, she also uh, has, I mean, Birds of Prey is dope. Bir- I read that. Bir- she created Birds of Prey, dude. Birds it's of Prey has become, awesome. you want to talk about a mind worm that has mm-hmm. stuck with the Batman franchise. Yep. Like yep. that shit has become almost more and, and like they don't always use the term birds of prey, but sort of that that grouping of the female bat family. Mm-hmm. Ha, again, the Harley Quinn TV show comes to mind, but even in the mainstream comics like that has has remained uh and it paved the way for something like Batwoman, which was very revolutionary at the time it came out. Um mm-hmm. I just, yeah, like, I don't know enough about her indie stuff, Gail Simone's indie stuff, to talk about it with any sort of authority. But I know that in addition to doing a lot of beloved stuff at DC, she's also been pretty prolific with creator-owned books. Um, I just have not read enough of them. I love the fact that she does um, the some Red Sonia stuff. Oh, yeah. I like trying to a woman investing, especially a redhead woman <laughs> investing. Um, you know, a red uh, Red Sonia with like some sort of. Um, she's always had pathos because she's a mystery because she's a mystery to Conan, but you can't kind of keep that up if she's in her own book. You kind of have to get to know her and all the stuff that I feel like Gail Simone has added to the the legend of of Red Sonia. It isn't, it doesn't, it's not dumb. You know what hmm. I mean? Like the stuff that she's added, sometimes she'll go do a little flashback when she was, uh, she was uh, tied up and she was messed. She was in this society that was fucked up, but she killed her way out of it. And then she got on a horse. Like she has like Conan type adventures throughout her youth and all the way up into her middle age, like fucking kicking ass and taking names and being a chick, you know? And uh, it's, it's really interesting to see. You have to have adventures just like Conan or else you're not doing her right. Because they're just beasts of the, of the field <laughs> running around. Right. You know what I'm saying? They're barbarians. Both of them are barbarians. It isn't a lady and a barbarian. It's two barbarians, one of whom is a woman and one of whom is a man. And I love that kind of dichotomy that, that given uh, her Conan-like pathos. I like Red Sonja way more than Cole the Conqueror or Bran McMorn or Solomon <laughs> fucking Kane. Uh, <laughs> it's Conan and Red Sonja, period. And yeah, she's and not part mention- of that still remaining. Yeah, 100%. And not to mention that her uh, Wonder Woman run is, I don't know, probably one of the more beloved comics on the planet right now. So Yeah, and Batgirl too, man. Yep. I mean, yeah, just... <laughs> 100%. The other, the other thing I think is worth mentioning with Gail Simone is she was one of the first comics writers to really blow up big on Twitter. And mm-hmm. I think, for better she... or worse... Go ahead, Ron. I was just going to say, she's a great Twitter follower. Yeah, <laughs> she really is. And like yeah. when I say for better or worse, I don't mean yeah. her. I mean, the way that sort of became de rigueur for people in the comics industry to just be really online. But yeah. like, you know, Warren Ellis had a blog and a, and, and a message board and 
Bendis, I think, famously had a message board um, when they were coming up. But Simone, I think, was one of the first to do it on Twitter and become very, very vocal, very, very opinionated. And I remember in those early days, like she was one of the first ones to really blaze that trail of like, oh, no, I can say whatever I want. Like, I'm not on here representing DC Comics or anybody Mm -hmm. else. I'm Mm -hmm. representing me and come to my Twitter for me. And like to a certain extent, that's pretty empowering for freelance creators where it's like Mm -hmm. you no longer have to toe the line just because you're trying to suck up to get a job. You can be yourself and have a point of view and still work. And I think that's awesome. Yeah, and especially if your point of view isn't like um, uh, well, certain uh, <laughs> MMA ladies. <laughs> like uh, she seems to have crossed that line pretty hard. But uh, look how big the line is. You could have you could have stepped up. You could have stepped on the same side of that. You're you're dumb. You fucked up your money anyway. So uh, Gail Simone also coming to fruition online like ni- 18, uh, 1899, 1999 uh, on uh, uh, women and refrigerators that web that website that was like oh. for people dissecting what happened happens to women in comics what kind of uh what kind of dramatic usages are there for women in pop culture why is it always to get murdered to motivate the hero or you know all this sort of stuff so they kind of were examining that and she posted frequently on there and it's kind of interesting going back to warren ellis warren ellis got really big i mean i think matt fraction either rick remender and somebody or matt fraction and kelly sudaconic some couple met on warren ellis's forums it was fraction and and deconic uh, yeah and we should we should talk about kelly sue DeConnick as well but yeah go oh, ahead. of course yeah i just mentioned a kelly sue DeConnick because she is also outspoken and not in some corny way she's she is an outspoken lady she gets she says what she wants to through the comics too she doesn't put her politics aside and not have captain marvel be a feminist because she's a feminist like no captain marvel has to be a f- trad wife republican because <laughs> i am not no, fuck that. That doesn't make any sense. She she does. She writes what she writes. She says what she says through the characters and she's outspoken about it and she's cool. And and I think a great Twitter follower as, as well. And yep. I think but Gail Simone, they're they're right with each other, like blazing trails. You know what I'm saying? I think Gail Simone did a lot of offensive lineman blocking for later women writers, Kelly Sue DeConnick included. Mm-hmm. Well, and uh, so speaking of Kelly Sue DeConnick, um, my favorite thing that she's ever written, and to the points you just made, Ed, is a series called Bitch Planet, which yep. <laughs> was a fantastic um, image series uh, that's about just what it sounds like. It's about it's about a group of women on a prison planet who stage a revolt against the government, which is uh, fucking dope. And also mm-hmm. a great exercise in br- – so, so uh, let, me, let me back up a second. Comics, alt comics – have a great tradition of being overtly political, and some may even say scathingly political. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't often get that in Marvel and DC comics, if ever. But in the underground, that is one of the prime uses of comics. And so Kelly Sue DeConnick was very much a, a pioneer of bringing that ethos into the mainstream. Now, obviously, Bitch Planet is not a Marvel or DC comic, but as an image comic, you know, with a big marketing budget behind it, written by a high profile person, you know, published and in comic book stores, it's not like it's in the back of a head shop, you know, next to zines. And yet it has the feel of something you'd find in the back of a head shop next to zines. (laughs) 100%. 
And I think, you know, we've been talking about sort of this heady approach that writers have brought to superheroes. But another great part about the modern era is that you're seeing those very alt comics sensibilities sort of suffusing all of comics. And I do think the Internet's a big part of that. And I do think that it's it's more about creators outside the white male mainstream being able to have their voices heard so they are not relegated to the back room of head shops. So Kelly Sue DeConnick, big props for that. Also, famously, I believe the co-creator of the Carol Danvers Captain Marvel. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean the the relaunch and everything. Obviously, correct. You know, not not yeah. the character of Carol Danvers, but, but rebranding yeah, Carol Danvers as Captain yeah. Marvel, which and, and basically, yeah, yeah, what we're getting now and what we're seeing now. So. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, like yeah, she was Miss Marvel and all this different jazz, and like oh, Frank Cho got a real kick out of drawing that old costume they had her in, <laughs> dude. And I think that's really funny that Kelly. Another thing, Kelly Sudeikonik, and I think ah, gosh, I'm gonna I'm gonna blank on the artist uh, who helped uh, Kelly Sudeikonik do that. But the bottom line is that new costume covering her up from head to toe was way far away from like the titillation that Frank Cho and them used to draw in the Brian Michael Bendis written uh, new Avengers or whatever uh, mm-hmm. stuff. So basically it was a real political thing. Like, no, fuck that. <laughs> Captain Marvel wears fucking, she looks like a ravager. You know what I'm saying? She has like a, <laughs> a ravager with a special suit. You know what I mean? Yeah. So fuck it. Yeah. That was a political act. That's why, that's what I was saying all that shit about. Like she puts, Hey, they decided to make her not, have her ass out a whole bunch. That was a political statement in and of itself. Which well, is wild, that, but I mean, that also became the ethos of that movie and and that the fran- that movie franchise. Now that the second one is coming out, but like that whole "I am not here for the male gaze" was like made explicitly text in the Captain Marvel movie. Yeah, mm-hmm. it, was, it was awesome. And you know, I do want to bring up somebody I think who helped kind of build a place uh, for women writers, but also is still like churning out great stuff. Um, and, and that is, uh, Devin Grayson. Um, Oh, interesting. Yeah. She, I, I haven't heard as much from her as, as I did, you know, circa 2010, but she was very big, especially at DC, uh, in that sort of mid two thousands era. Yeah. Yeah. She's been working on black widow, uh, for the last couple of years. Um, but you know, she also, you know, wrote for, for Nightwing for uh, like a decade. I believe Devin Grayson was the first one to tell all of us that Dick Grayson had a great ass. Yes. She, <laughs> she that sure, was her. She that was, was her. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> and I, I just didn't want to, I don't want to, I didn't want to leave her out because she's just done so much work and it is all pretty fucking great. I mean, we probably, and if you like Nightwing right now, that's probably why, you like Nightwing. Well, you know what? What's funny is you like a sandwich, and I'm sorry, you like a sandwich of Chuck Dixon and Devin Grayson. Mm-hmm. If you like Nightwing, that's what you yeah. like. <laughs> it's yeah. like he's like pumpernickel bread or something, and she's like marshmallow fluff, but like not nah, she's like she's like a good meat, but if you don't like pumpernickel bread, it's like fuck. This turkey is awesome, but like, oh, this is a <laughs> loaf of trash, but it all goes together to the sandwich. Because, like, Bloodhaven, <laughs> Bloodhaven is a shit sandwich of epic proportions. I'm sorry. As much as they try to make that place cool and individual, sure, it sure. sucks ass and it relegates him to a second class citizenship. Argue with your mama. But beyond that, they've done a really great job 
of doing stuff in that milieu to make him stand on his own. A lot of the new redesigns, you know, uh, of him and redesigning of his even mentality over the course of stuff. Like he's not, he's not a rebel anymore. He's not rebelling against anything. He's his own guy. There is this lightness of being to him. He can really be light. He can't like, just be like jumping all around and having a good time. And then every time Batman comes around, he's like, okay, he doesn't have to do that anymore. Yeah, they don't. They don't. He doesn't have to do that anymore. And that's a that's a really a real evolution that comes from, frankly, uh, getting out of Chuck Chuck uh, Dixon into uh, Devin Grayson. So, she also was uh, a very instrumental part in that Nightwing series of really rounding out Oracle as a character. Mm-hmm. Um, again, I, I I give a lot of credit to Morrison. They took Oracle and made her a linchpin of that late '90s JLA. Mm -hmm. serving that sort of man in the chair role. Um, But Devin Grayson really brought the humanity of somebody who had survived something horrible and gone on to sort of redefine herself on her own terms and still had this ongoing relationship with Dick Grayson. She brought all that to that Nightwing run. And, you know, they've since returned Barbara Gordon to both walking and being Batgirl. Um, a lot of the character persists that Devin Grayson really gave her uh, mm-hmm. over the course of that nightmare run. Yeah, 100%. yeah. And oh, a person that has a lady's name but is not a lady, Kelly Puckett. I just got to talk about Kelly Puckett real quick because Kelly Puckett uh, wrote and co-wrote a lot of uh, the early Batgirl, i.e. Cassandra Kane Batgirl stuff that really okay. got me kind of back into comics because I was about to just back off and like, touch boobs and stuff and not just my own <laughs> i was about to get out of here and go touch boobs and be an astronaut or something oh, besides my astigmatism damn it uh yeah. I, I was gonna i was gonna i was gonna be a contender and damn it batgirl and and the authority and shit yanked me right back down in the hell yeah, <laughs> you know? uh and they're just great stuff man just the, the, the all the ideas of what cassandra kane is just that brain trust was just, it's just really monumental to me. So I just wanted to give a just special shout out to uh, Kelly Puckett. Yeah. Kelly Puckett. Sorry. I was just going to say Kelly Puckett's one of those workmen, like Batman contributors. Um, I think artistically someone like Jim Apero, who is like, you know, mm. never going to be on a greatest of list, but was just churning and burning through some really great work for a really long time. Like Kelly Puckett was part of that team that really reestablished Batman coming out of the whole Nightfall rigmarole. Um, mm. Was instrumental in that time period, sort of between Nightfall and No Man's Land, and then the aftermath of No Man's Land, kind of getting mm-hmm. the ship righted again. So yeah, props and and that's I love that I love that that you have a a less well known writer that really made an impact on you. I mean, really, because like it's one of those things where you you get you, you got to understand how that redefined what Batgirl was and coming out of something like uh, No Man's Land, which I thought was dumb as hell. Mm-hmm. Earthquake and Gotham City and it tears everything up and blah, blah. I just that shit seems so fucking dumb. And uh, oh, but also uh, Scott Peterson wrote on that, too. Scott mm-hmm. Peterson wrote on those things, too. They were kind of a tag team on there. But uh, it's just it. To have Cassandra Kane come out, especially having a great character come out of, I don't know, just name your dumb crossover. It, it, yeah, Extinction Agenda has like one guy come out of it that's just amazing. Sure. You know, uh, you know I just, it, it was really, it really dawned on me that I liked a crossover character. 
that I like somebody kind of thrown in as an extra kid to the Bat family. It's the first time it happened to me. So I kind of understand kids now who like somebody like Duke or spoiler as Batgirl or all this crap. I get why they get that shit gets over on them. And even to a certain extent, people like Damien. I like Damien because Damien's a Grant Morrison creation in my mm-hmm. mind. Uh, but other than that, I don't think I would like Damien. But Damien's so sick because he's 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 more he's Morrison. You know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, I just feel like Batgirl was the last time that they got me with this new okay. product. Like, oh, we, we they're like Taco Bell me. They sold me corn and meat and cheese in a different fucking configuration. And I, I bought a hook, line, a sticker. Oh, it's a new Gordita Crunch. Oh, fuck yeah. Okay. Give me that uh-huh. shit. Doritos uh, on the outside? Okay, fuck it. I'll try. Exactly. So um, that, that's why it's a big part of my life. And I want to bring this one up. Uh, it's not necessarily a big part of my life, but I think it's a an important part of comics, and especially for young people right now, uh, was uh, Miss Marvel Kamala Khan version mm. um, uh, by Gwendolyn uh, Willow Wilson. And uh, a, a few other people who also, Sana Amanat, uh, Adrian Alfona, all these people who all worked on that book together. Uh, and it was one of the, it was one of those things that was a phenomenon uh, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. It, it was the best selling comic book of 2019, um, as far I, as just a series goes. And I think that that says something right there. And I, I don't know if we can include her in this, you know, as, greatest writers yet but i don't like, know what uh, in five it's years like when, uh, yeah it's like when Shaq came out when they were naming like the top whatever the fuck top 50 whatever players and it's like they voted Shaq in he was only three or four years in the league it's like ah oh, man but they they knew Shaq was going to be great so you're bet you're making a bet on g uh, wilson but I like mean, just G- the phenomenon thing is is worth noting yeah. g willow wilson is interesting because 100 like kamala khan probably the biggest new introduction to um, Marvel or DC since Harley Quinn. Like I don't, in the, in the intervening 20 years, I don't know if they introduced a new character that took off quite like that at either company. Mm-hmm. Um, that said, I'm not sure what G Willow Wilson has been up to since then. And I well, she also does essays and stuff like that and prose. So it's, yeah. it's hard to include her in this, but she also has another uh, comic uh, uh, independent comic coming out. Yeah, I'd, um, I'd love to see more work from her to that point, I think. I, that's all yeah, I'm trying to say. Yeah. yeah, 100%. And But I was just thinking about, you know, it had such like, I, I assume some of you guys have, you guys have read Miss Marvel, if you haven't, whatever, but uh, you should, because it has everything, everything that you like about Spider-Man, Miss Marvel has for all of the kids. It's oh, for sure. A pers- it's a person out of her element who uh, is already feeling ostracized because of who she is as a person and some of the and some of that's choices she, she believes in and, and has faith about and some of that is just fate just mm-hmm. putting her where she is and this wanting to be a different person and at, at the beginning of those comics when she makes herself a blonde-haired uh, white girl with blue eyes on accident because that's what she thinks may, will make people like her and it's and if you are a person who's ever been through something like that, even if it's just you feel weird because you like to read or you got glasses or whatever it is, people can relate to stuff like that, that you want to be the super buff person or you want to be the super hot person. And like the relatability of that character was so well done 
that I I truly hope that we get to see more from her that is is just as groundbreaking and relatable. So. So for my money, there are two people left that we haven't talked about. Um, yep. And well, maybe three. I, all right. Well, I'll say the first one we already mentioned, uh, Jonathan Hickman. Yeah. So Jonathan Hickman is another one of these guys that for my money only drops bangers. Like, I don't know that I've read anything by him that I've disliked, but I'm also aware that he is a little bit controversial because his entire bag has sort of been like, oh, Marvel's going to give me control of a franchise and I am going to completely redefine everything about it from like a secret history up to totally different character dynamics and turn it all on its head. And as someone who likes that, he does that better than anybody in comics. But if that's not your bag, I could see how he might rub you the wrong way. Uh, oh yeah, because uh, that's kind of been my experience. Like it isn't. It isn't that I'm Snydering him or anything. Because the inventiveness of it, what is it? Him and and Remender or maybe Fraction or whatever doing the Council of Rick stuff. Who who brought that back? Oh yeah, uh, I, I know the Council of Reeds. Reeds, yes. Uh, yeah, <laughs> you that, see, you see no, that was him. Yeah. Yeah, that was Hickman yeah. and Hickman and Fraction, I believe. He's he's top tier inventive, and he is the guy you hire to demolish because his um his design isn't. I mean, his uh background is in like design and writing. Like his original comics for Image that I were, became aware of were like these weird design books. Like you would open them up, and they'd be like a lookbook for a product that was never going to come out. You know what I mean? They're mm-hmm. just like like if you opened up a, a, a fucking something in the, in the Truman show and it didn't have blank pages, it would have these as somebody who both writes and also has a graphic design degree. I fucking love it because yeah. it's essentially like taking the back matter from Watchmen, where Alan Moore had like, you know, secret files and book excerpts and magazine mm-hmm. articles and all this shit and literally integrating it into the story. So, you know, the most mm-hmm. recent one being like, as you're reading the X-Men House of X, Powers of X saga about them establishing oh, yeah. their entirely new society, whenever it becomes relevant, you get a page like from the files of Professor X or from the files of Orcus, the uh, the Sentinel program, mm-hmm. like detailing certain information. And it's just such a cool shorthand for like, instead of doing a recap page or instead of doing the Chris Claremont, let me tell you everything in captions, Getting like a cool little piece of ephemera that has an interesting layout with all the stuff you need to know. I don't know. It, it makes the reading experience something different. I mean, I truly enjoyed it with uh, House of House of X and Powers of X. Now, Ed, I do remember that you have s- sometimes lamented and missed uh, the X Men being not powerful and being hunted. Perennial underdogs becoming overdogs kind of overnight and the world still functioning like at all. You know what I mean? It's just, it just feels, it just, that just was a step too far for me, but I do agree and like that mutant culture from Morrison's work and mm. on up through this. And, and, and I think a lot of our remainder and stuff as well, even working on weird books like, um, like that uh, X Force, where they were just like straight murdering fools, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's there's these different pockets of the X universe. So there's 
an overall culture and that culture has assassins and killers and it has people who want to make money and it has people who want to be rock stars and it has people who want to do everything. It isn't just, I'm twisting my mustache and I'm ugly and I'm in the sewer or I'm on a super team and everybody loves me. It's like, there's a, there's a whole new strata of mutantdom out there, but there never was an actual overall community where all were welcome. And I think yeah. that the Hickman bringing that, to the four being like, yo, what if there was a straight up Zamunda for mutants? Like straight yep. up. Everybody's Zamunda, Wakanda, whatever. Everybody's rich. Everybody likes each other. Like, I mean, black people have talked about going to Africa being like, so the pilot is black and the doctor is black and the elevator repairman is black and the guy who's making my lunch is black. And also the mayor is black and the president is black. And it's like this world that blows their mind because they're used to the exact opposite where they're from. And it's like mutants being able to just be like, oh, yeah, you got tentacles, man. Let's go to the fucking tentacle bar. Then let's, you know it's like, it, yeah. it doesn't fucking matter in this new Krakoa and shit. And I don't balk at that aspect of the shit at all. I just think that even just like in real life, there's always underdogs. There's even, I think that's probably some of the plot elements in Jonathan Hickman's run is there's always yep. going to be the people who don't quite follow the program. The people who are kind of left out of the program, even though we're all supposed to be united and there's all these different factions, even in perfect societies. So yeah, I'm, I'm super down with Hickman. I just feel like some of it is austere for me. It just feels like a little removed mm-hmm. and a little, a little, um, a little Nolan-y, which is why I, I'm, I'm feeling the sure. coldness, and I that's know why I that's lo- what Bill loves. That's why I love it. <laughs> no, you're you're not wrong, dude. I see those similarities 100. Yeah. percent And I, I think the danger of guys like Hickman, Morrison, and all these other great guys, Warren Ellis, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, and the, the danger of these guys, though, is you get people who really like them, who then go off and make weird shit mm. that isn't is good, like. You know, we got we got. Well, we already Claus talked about Wolverine. Mark Miller. Yes. <laughs> and and Hot Claws Wolverine. Holy shit, Ed! <laughs> that's a bang. That's a banger that was, of a diss right there. That was pretty good. That was pretty good. But honestly, yes, some of that, but also worse ideas. Yeah, I, I mean, let me say, I, I think that's the consequence of taking big swings. That's true. If, if you're a genius and you take a big swing, it's fucking awesome because nobody had ever thought of that before. And like, that's what I feel like when I'm reading Morrison or when I'm reading Hickman. I, I do want to say I think Hickman has a particular ability and affinity for sort of breaking down institutions. It's like he's really concerned with how large groups of people function together. And you see that in everything from his Fantastic Four with the Future Foundation to Secret Wars to what we're talking about with X-Men. And even back to the nightly news, like it very much was a dissection of like how the news functions in society. Like that's sort of Hickman's bag. And I'm into that. But if you're not, you're not. But anyway, Mm -hmm. when those guys take big swings, it's fucking cool because it makes you think and it feels like I've never thought about that or I've never seen that before. When people who aren't as talented take big swings, they just piss you off. <laughs> you know what I mean? They just yeah. turn into like either lightning rods for controversy or it just sucks so bad that everyone's like, what the fuck? Why would you do this? Yeah. And like I, you know, I people- think when the blob ate a bunch of dudes in the ultimate X-Men and Jeff Lowe broke that shit, motherfuckers <laughs> was mad. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And they should have been. 
it's tough. I think we hear a lot about in the modern era that the problem with comics is like too many crossovers, too many big events. And in a lot of ways, I think that coincides with the rise of the writer as superstar. You know, in the 90s, we talked about the image guys made artists the rock stars of comics. And as we talked about in that episode, like the writers who were keeping the ships going through those days were just kind of workmen. And I think the companies ended up seeing the writers as like, here's a thing we can promote and have more control over because now we're not going to be beholden to these artists who are too big for their britches and can take however long they want and blah, blah, blah. But in so doing, you get this culture where like a couple rarefied minds can really stick the landing on the big swings and then there's everybody else. And so you're incentivized to take those big swings but 90% of the time it doesn't work. I absolutely agree with that assessment. And I think, I think there's somebody who unites those cultures of get with an artist and also just be your own brand. Mm. And I think that's my boy, Garth Ennis mm. straight out of Glasgow or some damn where, um, uh, Northern Irish. Anyway, the, the, uh, he, to me, Garth Ennis is kind of my, there are people who are mad at us for our take on Mark Miller. Because Mark Miller is their Garth Ennis in the parlance I'm using right now. Like, I'm going to defend. I'm gonna def- do, you know what I mean? Yes. I, I'm going to literally the him. perfect way to put it. <laughs> you know, I'm definitely going to defend him and all his foibles and his conservatism and his everything because I believe that there are people who play at nihilism, mm. but Garth Ennis is an actual for real nihilist scarred by actual war and the threat of war or rather, excuse me, the threat of terrorism Mm -hmm. um, and actually understands something as much as a writer can uh, that isn't a soldier as well. He understands soldier shit. He understands Purell capitalism, which is how you you come up with something like the boys when this is funny, like uh, Derek Robertson did something with Morrison, something with Bendis, I think, and something with um, Garth Ennis. And yeah. something with Ellis. Or Ellis, yeah. You know what I'm yeah. saying? So he, Derek Robertson is going, uh, uh, greatest pod and nerd goat alum, Derek Robertson, is uh, winding through this this place. But uh, basically, you come up with the boys, which, you know, there are parts of it that are very puerile. I stopped reading it myself. And then you see stuff like Preacher that he created, you know, uh, and him and Steve Dillon's like, relationship. Uh, throughout. So he, he has artists that he goes through a lot. Robertson, um, um, fucking Goran Parlov to a certain degree. Uh, like there's all types of people that he gets with over and over again, but it's always Garth Ennis, dude. Like, I think he's got as strong a voice as any of these highfalutin guys we've talked about. Mm. Sure. And I think his, he doesn't have to be sophisticated all the time. I think that's the, the gutter. The gutter is where he kind of lives and thinks that everywhere is the gutter. You thinking that there's more rarefied air than the gutter is your fucking problem mm. in his universe. Mm. And and the, the other thing is when he does, um, you know, the big, the big two, it's usually pretty, it's like Hellblazer or the Punisher. You know, he's not doing, he's not doing a lot of a Batman no, <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, although, I although I mean. famously in Hitman, uh, there was that there was that <laughs> where uh, the hit, Hitman puked on Batman's lap in the Batmobile, which was great. But um, I want to say about Ennis, I think he's sort of that connecting node between 
a guy like Morrison or a guy like Ellis who has these literary aspirations and then someone like Kelly Sue DeConnick who is trying to bring that sort of punk rock attitude of the head shops and zines into mainstream comics. Mm. Garth Ennis is 100% working in that in between. And I would argue is the most successful writer in that in between. Like Preacher is fuck the boys I agree with you didn't necessarily stick the landing as well as the TV show, but Preacher fucking phenomenal, Hitman fucking phenomenal, his Punisher best work ever done on that character from a writing standpoint for my money. His Hellblazer on a series that has seen the best writers in all of comics, a lot of guys that we've talked about already. One of the best, if not the best, on that book. So, like, Garth Ennis is very worth mentioning in this conversation, even if he is not normally held up as, like, a paragon of the comic book writer. And just and real quick, I have two uh, anecdotes that prove to me that he's great. Number one, he worked on the shitty version of The Punisher that they had for regular Marvel Knights, I think. And Punisher <laughs> yes. was straight up, like, a bunch of mafiosos tracked Punisher to a zoo. Punisher threw an anaconda at one of them and it wrapped him up to the point where his whole body was wrapped up with a shotgun pressed against his body so he couldn't shoot the Punisher because anacondas move that fast. And then he ran into the polar bear den and punched a polar bear and got it real riled up. So it turned the corner and ate a bunch of mafiosos as Punisher jumped out of the way. Okay, so Garth Ennis is capable of fucking company nonsense like that and doing it with a smile and doing it as gleefully and ultraviolently as he can to satisfy that brand. And then when they give him the Punisher to just do like it's a like a real 55, 60 year old guy stranded from Vietnam who kills mafiosi and shit like that. They those stories are so awesome because they're about an ineffectual, idiotic CIA trying to deal with a guy they really don't want to catch. They're too scared of to even try to catch. Right. It's kind of like got a killing Eve. If you guys have ever seen mm. killing Eve, it's literally a lady CIA agent gets like enamored of a female assassin. Just the fact that there's a female assassin that's this good and this operating on the world stage, killing presidents and prime ministers and shit. And she gets enthralled in it. And she gets like people do that with the Punisher over and over and over again. at Garth Ennis things. He's fucking fascinating. Like what if Bigfoot came into town and shot a bunch of Goombas in the fucking mouth every fortnight? That'd be weird. Look, he's, he's a cryptid, legendary John Wickian creature in the hands of Garth Ennis. And when Garth Ennis tries to tell the story of Punisher's origins, it's mythic and large. Like Grant Morrison wrote it. It isn't, uh, he left his family. He made, a mar- he made a bargain with a demon in the leech-infested swamps of Vietnam that he could get back home to his family. That's him. That's the Punisher in Garth Ennis's hands. Oh, he shoots a bunch of mohawked uh, teenagers. No, 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 no. He slits the throats of CEOs in their sleep unless their blood shoot on their dumb wives. You know what I'm saying? Like he fucking, he kills people who steal people's pensions. Okay. This is the Punisher and Garth Ennis's hands. This is why he's significant. He's very punk rock. Like you said, Bill, he's one of the only actual punk rock fucking people at any of these companies ever. And last things last, he did an unknown soldier comic. Unknown soldier was like a backup and shitty uh, DC zines. It was this guy with a wrapped up mummy face. And he was also a master of disguise. So Hitler be doing some shit. And then the guy next to him would stab him. He's like, ha, I'm the unknown soldier. It was this goofy gimmick that they ran. And it was okay. The Garth Ennis, uh, Killian Plunkett, unknown soldier story is fucking amazing. And the whole thing is about unknown soldier trying to get somebody to replace him. 
He's been fighting in war since said he fought in the Iran Contra shit. He fought in World War II. He fought in Nicaragua. He fought in everything. He's pushing 80 and he's still muscular. He's still a superhuman. He's still throwing people around. He's still a master of disguise. He's still in everything. But the world is changing too much. The wars are too disparate. There isn't a real clear line of moral, um, you know, compass. So he wants to get out of the game. So he like systematically kills everybody the CIA guy knows, trying to make him be the unknown soldier. And when the dude refuses, the unknown soldier has to go back to being the unknown soldier in the new uncertain world. Come on, man. That's the shit. That's the shit. That's what we're trying to do to mature up this bullshit. That's what we're trying to do. And Garth Ennis does it in spades. So that's what I got to say about Garth Ennis. I would set the mic down over here. I'm just uh, I'm just going to add to that. On top of everything Ed said, Garth Ennis once wrote Superman in an issue of Hitman. And if you think you know what it's going to be based on the boys and Hitman barfing in the Batmobile and all that shit, you are wrong. And all I will say is look that shit up and almost everything that I ever argue about why Superman is great and why he matters, the way that this nihilistic, violence-obsessed dude writes Superman in the pages of Hitman will connect with everything I've ever said about the character. So he gets it. Yeah. Let me say the problem, uh, though, um, and this is not Garth uh, uh, Ennis's fault by any means, uh, is that some people read that, his stuff, and they don't understand what he's actually about. And then you get a lot of people who have Punisher things on their trucks that have extra large wheels while drinking Mountain Dew and having a, a flat build hat uh, talking about how much they love killing uh, or would love to kill, uh, you know, anybody still on a TV. You know what I mean? I mean? We, we got, we got to put warning labels on baby scissors, dog. It's a, at it's a certain a point, at a certain a point, you know what I'm saying? We got to put don't drink on the motherfucking shampoo. You know what, <laughs> what I'm saying? So like, we I, literally I do. In a you world do. like that, in a world like that, I cannot, I am, I'm going to say it. I'm above blaming media for these dullards sure. doing all this bad shit. I'm yeah. above it. I'm officially his above fault. it. I don't, it's it, it doesn't. And, and also, again, they're not reading that shit. They're reading like, I don't know, those Don Perlin type of like uh, death wishy crappy comics where he had the big white skull and the white gloves or something. They're like the, the Garth yeah. Ennis Punisher and doesn't like them. The, Garth yeah, Ennis Punisher doesn't like them and isn't down with that bullshit at all. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Cops no, get I killed every day in Garth Ennis Punisher comics, dude. There's yeah. some of the people who there's some of the only people who really get killed. Innocents don't really die in, in Garth Ennis Punisher comics. Cops, mafioso, and uh, you know, dictators and shit, and CEOs, yep. more or less in reverse order, are the people who get killed in Garth Ennis Punisher story. So it's, you, you can willfully misunderstand any goddamn thing. Shit. It's true. Well, uh, let's 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 talk. I think the last two things we're gonna point out are are people who are probably equally as close to independent as we can possibly get as and as uh, independent as Garth Ennis, but probably not as punk rock. Um, I think we're going to start with uh, Brian K. Vaughn. Um, if, uh, if you guys. Well, and you want to talk about, you know, a writer who is super talented, but in that same way that we talked about with Ennis, like you find your artistic partner and it 
just takes it to another level. Brian K. Vaughn with Fiona Staples doing yep. Saga is just next level. And I don't really know where the writing begins or ends, but like that partnership, the writing is as good as the art. This is not a Scott Snyder, Greg Capullo situation. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But it should be said, a great writer brings out the best in their artists, which I think you also see in something like Morrison and Quitely. So Brian K. Vaughn being able to get these amazing artistic collaborators um, Nico Henrichan, I think, was the artist on Pride of Baghdad, which was like a, oh, a one-off graphic novel Yeah, that, that Vaughn wrote about lions escaping the Baghdad Zoo during the bombing mm-hmm. of Baghdad. Unbelievable comics. And again, he elevates the artist who elevates the story, and that reciprocal relationship takes it over the top. Um, and I would say even the same thing about Ex Machina, which I think we mentioned last episode. Um, I've never seen, um, oh shit. Who is that artist? Oh, I think, uh, Tony, Tony Harris. Was it Tony yes, Harris? Tony Harris. I've never seen Tony Harris's art look better than in that series. Um, and again, a stellar series that takes a thoroughly independent look at the question of what would happen if the world's only superhero became the mayor of New York city mm-hmm. after saving one of the twin towers on nine 11. And yeah. so is very much like a legal drama, but in the, the sort of magical realist milieu of superheroes, Brian K Vaughn can get it, man. Like that guy is, um, is yeah. inventive, humanistic, intensely character focused, but also capable of delivering very satisfying plots. A plus. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Ex Machina also is a little bit of that, like you said uh, about um, uh, Brian Michael Bendis, that sort of procedural, uh, a little bit, you know, sort of a uh, uh, mammity procedural talky law and ordery sort of like, these are the inner workings. Uh, th- this is what happens when a superhero is mayor. Dong dong. Ah, shit, I'm doing a walk and talk down the chair. Oh, God, somebody's, I got to jump out the window and put my jetpack on. You know, all this different shit. And his powers lent him to being connected with the city. The guy in there, ex, uh, the ex machina, he used to be this superhero called the machine or or, what, or, and he's the great machine. The great machine. And uh, he saved one of the towers from 9 11. So he became a superhero. I mean, he became a hero in everybody's minds and ran for mayor and kind of put his superhero on the side, but his power is to connect to machines. So machines are everywhere. There's a web of, you know, electronic energy out there in the city. So he's like connected to stuff and he kind of has his, it's kind of like the Tony Stark with the one glove and the stupid fucking briefcase walking around, you know what I'm saying? You know, Uh that, that kind of thing was what how he was when he was just walking around in the streets and then occasionally he would put on his old duds to try to fit into him and go do a do a thing or solve something but a lot of it was really just palace intrigue sort of stuff with a former superhero like that sort of genre bending stuff paper girls also bro paper girls fucking i've read that he it's i can't even describe the plot it involves sort of time travel sort of reality hopping it involves like girls riding bikes and a stand by me sort of strangers things type of situation it's just such an inventive story it's a giant fucking concept it's so awesome cliff chang draws the shit out of the motherfucker it's just these things that come out of his head aren't like normal 
And if Morrison didn't exist, I think we would be being like, hey, man, mm-hmm. this shit right here is just some of the most uh, he's up. He's up there, man. I can't wait to see some of the more stuff he does. Even why the last man? I stuck why that the shit last out. Man. Yep. I stuck that shit out for a it's long great. time because uh, yeah. uh, he and the artist, I think uh, Pia Guerrero, I think is her name. Yep. Yep. Uh, did Pia the, yeah. Uh, did the dopest shit with that just keeping it going keeping him apart keeping yorick apart from his girlfriend on in australia keeping like the every now and again when it would get boring a space dude would drop out and be like hey i'm a man from outer space or whatever you know all this weird shit would happen and he would just keep the story going i just i enjoyed it and i don't like road comics and i even jumped off of walking dead really quick i stuck with why the last man for a long time yeah i think you it's easy to kind of look past how influential why the last man was when it was coming out it was mm-hmm. a bona fide creator-owned hit at a time yep. when everybody thought the creator-owned era of comics had passed it was it was a vertigo comic when vertigo was on the wane and image looked like it was on the verge of dissolving kind of right around the turn of the century um why the last man was sort of like this gleaming beacon for indie creator owned comics, because not only was it very successful, but I mean, it was brilliantly written. It was a literary engrossing dramatic piece of writing. Um, And I I mean, you could say that about everything that the guy's written, like Brian K Vaughn is one of those guys, his body of work is not huge, but when he creates something new, it's, 1000% 1000% worth paying attention to. Oh, and real quick, or Runaways. I just want to mention Runaways. Oh, yeah. Oh, interesting. I, yeah, yeah. Uh, runaways, just the concept being the villains of a world have kids and their kids don't know they're villains. And what happens when the kids find out that, like, I think, I think the villains are going to sacrifice them or something? Some weird shit happens and they break away from their parents and they are their own super identities they have sort of little powers they're of their own that they don't even really use because they're stupid rich kids and they're not really preparing for anything because they're not supposed to be fuck what the, <laughs> the fuck sorry that's that's my, that's my background yeah um i thought you had some you. whales outside your house uh the fucking killer whales they're stopping the podcast now they're like no more talking about relationships or comics fuck y'all <laughs> <laughs> um but uh, yeah, Runaways, basically, your parents are evil. They've kept their evil secrets from you. You find out your bloodline. You find out who you're supposed to be, and you can decide to be that or not. That could have been the new Harry Potter for the fucking 21st century, and I just think got into development hell, went weird. The comic ran maybe a little too long. It should have been like a nice Watchmen about these super kids either killing or neutralizing or getting away from and having to constantly fight their parents, basically, or something like that. And it just kind of turned into whatever it turned into. But like, I think as a concept, damn, I think that it, he didn't miss. I think the overall machine missed by not yeah. letting that be like a movie or a youth movie or a youth series mm-hmm. or off the bat, maybe not even having to go through the step of being a comic book first, you know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> you know, because he starts getting the TV very instantly and you can see that some oh, of yeah. his ideas filtered through comics are fine. But comic is just comics are just sort of wetting up some of these ideas. <laughs> by, by the way, it's it's worth pointing out with Runaways that Disney blatantly ripped it off with their franchise called Descendants, which stars mm. the children of all the villains from their animated movies. And 
I don't I don't know how he hasn't sued. Well, I guess you don't sue Disney. So there you go. Yeah. Oh, Good luck with that. Yeah. No, yeah, dude. Disney Disney comes to Thanksgiving dinner, smacks your wife. Yeah, yeah anyway, but, uh, so pass the potato. <laughs> well speaking of actually honestly i think this is an interesting point like one that's what one of the things that's so great about vaughn is he has not needed anybody else at all but himself and And his artist and his artist of course and and he chooses a great artist for whatever he's doing and the artist matches perfectly whatever it is he wants to do and and they they turn into a team and he always mentions his artist by the way so it's it's very respectful of comics and i love how independent this guy gets to be so well and i think he shares that with the 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 next and probably final guy we're going to talk about yeah but i think it is interesting that like up to this point and granted our focus has been on mainstream comics but here's a guy that we can talk about in the context of mainstream comics and not once mention a credit for either Marvel or DC property. No. Um, and even like sagas through image, but I think why the last man was at vertigo originally. I, I and, think it's a vertigo joint. Yeah. And yeah. he, and but he retained all rights and control of that. And then, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I mean a very independently minded guy, obviously supplemented by the income. I mean, he started writing for TV back in the lost days mm. um, and has and been ever why, since. And that's so. why he could do what the fuck he wants. Like, honestly, yeah, I was yeah. outside of a comedy club talking to somebody. And they were like, we were, we were like doing the comedian's version of five year plan. What the fuck are you trying to do? And I was just like, I'm trying to sell something and get so much fucking money that I can come back to the club and be like, fuck all of y'all and just spray <laughs> you down like with all this hot shit. Cause I literally don't care. I literally don't, I don't have to care if I bomb or do good or anything. I'll become like this, like how fucking Leslie Jones is on stage now. Leslie mm-hmm. Jones is like Oppenheimer right now, mm-hmm. bro. She doesn't care. Every time she, <laughs> she gets up, it's care. just motherfuckers get blown back and she doesn't care what you fucking think she has money she goes on red carpet she's got a memoir coming out she's like adele or something she's a grand damn lady she doesn't care what you think if she can get as dirty and nasty as she wants and do her red fox and just fuck ship shit over yell at the audience and they love her for it because they know that she's being relentlessly authentic in a way that frankly most comedy stars quote unquote can never be that's what you get when you got fuck you money. That's what you get when you actually have made it. So I would just love to experience that. And I was talking about that. And like Brian K. Vaughn's been living that. Yeah. He, he's been living that almost since day one. He was never slave to these dudes going, well, come on. You know, you want to write this for Vertigo and have us own it and have a, a legal rigmarole. No, I want the gaming deal. We don't yeah. give that to just anyone. <laughs> You're going to give it to me because I don't fucking need you at all. I'll sell the shit out of my trunk. Like E40, you know, I don't give a fuck. Yeah. (laughs) You know, it's just marketing from that power base. It's like playing poker with all the chips. Yeah. It's like power of Radcliffe and um, Elijah Wood, who like they literally just do whatever they want now. Whatever weird ass movie. Oh, you want me to make a movie where there's two guns tattooed? like drilled into my hands oh they're literally drilled into his hands yeah drilled into his hands or or you know like 40s but guns Mm -hmm. and you want me to make a weird ass weird owl movie where i'm ripped and just doing this (laughs) ridiculous bullshit 
Sure. Yeah. I'll do whatever I want now because I got Harry Potter money. So suck a dick. Yeah. And I love absolutely. it. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So, um, and that is one of the powers of, of, of Vaughn. And I think it's also might be one of the powers of Robert Kirkman. Robert Kirkman mm-hmm. is an interesting one. Look, I mean, I'm well on record. Invincible, one of my favorite comics I've ever read. Um, Walking Dead, the success can't be overstated. I mean, biggest phenomenon in comics since God knows when. Um, And just the fact that, like, he became an image partner at a time when the prospect of becoming an image partner seemed to be completely off the table for anybody just on the strength of the books that he wrote. And Mm. arguably probably saved image. Um, I don't know if he saved it, but he defined an entire new direction for that company for sure. Sure. Um, Well, it's interesting real real quick. It's interesting to put this person with this, with this, I think it's a nice dyad him and Rick Remender. Because Rick Remender comes from the indie world, goes to so-called Marvel comics, comes back Fucking Kirkman was driving around Eric Larson and picking his brain 20 years ago. You know what I'm saying? Or 15 years ago. And he's been angling for this be with image, be a self-published person. He tried to draw his own comics like Bendis couldn't quite get it handled. Rick Remender drew his own comics starting out, wanted to be super hyper punk and independent, ended up kind of going the image route after getting a little bit, I think simultaneously with doing his own comics, he got uncanny x-force a different shit over at the x-men he also had fear agent running at the same time he had marvel you know what i mean right like he's he remember hopscotches kirkman went exactly for what he wanted exactly and got it in spades but fucking battle pope somebody who could who, somebody who could leverage battle pope into being the publisher of image get the fuck out of here this guy and arnold schwarzenegger are tied in the like it's the immigrant story of comics or whatever, you know, whatever you want to say, the yeah. story of like, you come through and you're a stranger to strange land and you ingratiate yourself. And you become the hero. It's Robert Kirkman and fucking, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Dude. No, I, I feel that. I feel that completely. And it's weird because I, you know, I don't know why I feel so hesitant about mentioning Kirkman in this discussion of like the greatest writers of all time. Maybe it's just because he has had such improbable and outsized success that, again, that cynical part of me goes, "Eh, this doesn't really add up here. Like, what's what the fuck is going on? (laughs) It's not very punk rock to be super successful with a weird zombie thing. Kind of. But but again, it's like I think about most of the stuff I've read from him, even that weird collaboration he did with Todd McFarlane, Haunt which was sort of like a second-rate Spawn knockoff. Like, it wasn't badly written. Um, and, like, I read the first maybe 10, 15 issues of Firepower and intend to get back to it to finish it, um, which was his sort of his next-gen series that's currently going on at Image. And, like, it's fucking great. So I don't know why, like, a part of me – maybe it's just because I feel like he hasn't done enough – to really cement himself or maybe he hasn't done anything that feels grand enough. I don't know. Maybe it's just well, me. I, 
maybe we're maybe I think there is a thing about like uh, even me mentioning like Remender. Remender did Deadly Class, which is one of frankly the best series of graphic novels. Like until about I think I read the first five, and I started being like, okay, can these fucking kids graduate? What the fuck? Um, you know, <laughs> like, like you know, it gets a little stretched out. But I'm just saying, like when he touches stuff, it's pretty good and it's pretty inventive. And he did this thing called Low about basically the sun gets close to the earth or whether the sun just does what the sun does and the earth's temperature rises. And basically we go down to the bottom of the ocean and the, and the radiation from the sun has made the surface basically unlivable. So we're at the bottom of the ocean having like hedonistic Roman bacchanals all day because there's really nothing to live for. And there's like just slaves and mutants and fucked up shit. And this one lady discovers maybe there's a way for us to kind of, have atmosphere and be cool and be fine or, or or get out of here and go to another planet. Anyway, she gets hope for the first time in generations. And that's mm. what the fucking comic is about. Mm. And Greg Tuccini draws it. I'd love to see a movie or a series that, that was like that. It was like really amazing. And again, though, it's just like, eh, can I put in with the Morrisons and blah, blah, blah? Can I even, you know, and I have a trouble with uh, even Brian Michael Bendis, honestly, less with him though, because of his contribution to the overall thing. It, there's no way Brian Michael Bendis won't be as celebrated as people like Mark Wade and Kurt Busiek that we were oh, talking about sure. last episode. There ain't no goddamn yeah. way he's our, his footprint yeah. is so large. And I think with Kirkman, it's just like Gatling gun of stuff. Like I think he, bro, this is going to be the most controversial hot take. He's oh. the closest thing that we have to a writing Jack Kirby. Right. Oh, like, you know, this guy who just, I make stuff. Fuck it. Give me, give me a piece of paper. Come up a page. Give me another one. You yeah. And this, this guy who's just like, I, I write, I write. What a guy named Firepower. He's got a, he's got a gun head. That's what you were talking about. Fucking uh, uh, Stan Lee earlier. I think he really is kind of a Stan Lee guy. And he's become like the Stan Lee of image. Now he, every time image launches something, he has to sit there and be like, yeah, I, I saw him on the transformers panel. It was him and Daniel Warren Johnson sitting up there talking about goddamn Transformers and how he had backdoor piloted uh, the story of Jetfire, this giant Transformer from our our youth, into some indie story. And he had to hide it from the press and stuff because they all they report on everything he does like he's the fucking Pope. Any yeah. move that Kirkman makes, yeah, they can't hide it. He's like Spielberg or something for Christ's sake in, yeah. in our industry. He's up there. They can't, they got to put a shroud over this motherfucker. Like he's the president's mistress or something. You know what I'm saying? To, to, to move him about. He's really big. Kirkman's really big. And I think. Yeah, that's interesting. He's got, he, he's got the power that, frankly, Miller wishes he had in regards to, well, me as an idea machine, my shit just makes money. My shit just prints money. Mark Miller shit don't print money like that. Kirkman shit print money. Yeah. That goddamn Invincible is with a company that don't need to make no fucking money. So he's golden over there. And goddamn, uh, Walking, Walking Dead, Dead Walking Dead made so much money. Oh my god, dude! That I mean, that essentially billions of be, dollars. It became an entire TV network, like AMC, <laughs> AMC, which is an independent network, right? It has no major studio owner. Was pretty much rescued from oblivion by fucking Walking Dead, because mm -hmm. like. As successful as um, Breaking Bad and Mad Men were, when they ended, like there was nothing else there for AMC. That shit was about to be the Better Call Saul channel. <laughs> that too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then Walking Dead comes and suddenly it's like the biggest channel on cable. Mm -hmm. And 
I mean, it's just crazy. And yeah, it, I don't know of another, certainly not another independent creator who has that sort of a stat on their resume. I mean, it's mm -hmm. crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe, so like, I did, you know yeah, what? His, maybe his, the creators of the Ninja, sorry. Maybe yeah. the creators of the Ninja Turtles. Yeah. Yeah. You know what yeah, I mean? Killer. It's like, yeah. it's those guys and Kirkman. Yeah. 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 Wild. So that's, I think that's why it's just wild to like, and, and plus how quickly he's even transitioned out of like, he writes what he wants to now. He wrote so much and so prolifically that now he just writes whatever he wants, when he wants and tag teams up with whoever he wants. And then goes and sits in on boring meetings where he's going to sleep. He's like getting paid $47,000 an hour to go to sleep in meetings while people show him a bunch <laughs> of Korean drawings of the shit he wrote five years ago, reinterpolated. He's like, yeah, I, I guess that's good. You know what I'm saying? And he goes into the walking walking dead room and like, hey, we're gonna have a zombie bite some guy's nuts off. Then we do that. Doesn't worry about it. Yep, sounds good to me. He's just wandering around making money all day. But it, it's crazy though, because like Skybound Entertainment, his company that he is the mm -hmm. CEO of, they make consistently good shit. Like they're mm -hmm. making like board games and, and podcasts and shit now. They're all good. So, like, mm -hmm. clearly the guy knows quality when it comes to entertainment. And also, it, yeah, I, I just want to give credit for as much as he's written. This is a nice inventive addition to, uh, you know, the process of modern comics. He keeps writing fucking endings. He ended The Walking mm. Dead. He ended Invincible. <laughs> he's going to end Firepower. He ended, uh, what was it? Oblivion Song was the other one mm. that he did for Image. It's like. He creates these things that are just absolute entertainment juggernauts and then has the temerity to give them an ending, which mm -hmm. not even Todd McFarlane could say that. Dude, I mean, because I think he has the confidence in the next idea, which is wild as fuck to me, because like you could jump into the machine and come up with ideas for the next five Watchmen series or whatever. Not like those aren't artistic endeavors, but they're a different sort of an artistic endeavor than making up your own thing, monetizing it to absolute death. Then coming mm -hmm. up with another franchise, running four or five con uh, concurrent franchises at one time. He's just I, – I, I have a soft spot in my heart for prolific people, especially mm -hmm. in something where like this, where it's kind of so-called easy to be prolific. Script pages come out a little faster than, than uh, art pages, obviously. So like a lot of these people were since the beginning of time been writing or whatever, four books a month or whatever, but there are people who do it with such skill and Elon, you know what I'm saying? And he, he keeps his own voice. He does his own thing. And I don't think the writing is all super great like that, but they're just, they keep going. He keeps doing it. You know what I mean? And he keeps making worlds that are infinitely adaptable. I think Mark Miller needs to kill him, dude. <laughs> like, he's doing literally everything. Power. dude it's like a highlander situation a <laughs> love it well i mean i think to put a cap around all this it's it's been interesting splitting this up into three episodes because i think in that first episode we really looked at comics when it was just a disposable medium that people mm -hmm. treated as kind of a monolith who were working in it everything was a little bit the same and if you stood out it was almost on accident then, you know, we looked at sort of the Iron Age uh, from, you know, from the 80s into the 90s, where it was like, we're bringing these hard-boiled deconstructionist sensibilities into comics and experimenting the first tentative steps into really thinking about comics as literature. And if we're going to talk about this era, this modern era that we've been living in for like the past 20 years, 
I think the one thing that yokes it is diversification. There's a diversity of voices, a diversity of characters, and a diversity of approaches. Everything from like gonzo futurist, what does it all mean, Grant Morrison, to super salesman-y, prolific, slick, made-for-TV Robert Kirkman, and all kinds of, you know, untried, untested things happening for the big two in between. It's, I think when, when they write the history books of comics, you know, 20 years from now, this will definitely be seen as the writer's era, but I think it'll be really hard to define it beyond that because, you know, everybody we talked about today has taken the ball and ran with it in some different direction than everybody else. They all took their unique perspectives and ideals and put them on the page. And, and isn't that all what we're trying to do when we write, when we create things? We're trying to take our unique perspective and share it with the world. I mean, and the people who are the best at it are going to be the most successful, it seems like. I mean. Yeah. And so. it's also, in the end, too, it's also about you have to play with these other toys as though they're yours. And that's a hard road to hoe. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? That that's like, uh, and just uh, as a, as a super appendix, Christopher priest, AKA Jim Owsley, he wrote a, mm-hmm. uh, fucking, uh, Spider-Man versus Wolverine, a seminal graphic novel for my youth where Spider-Man punches a lady to death. Look it up. <laughs> uh, and that's why he's in the conversation for greatest of all time. No, <laughs> no, no. Uh, but but you know, like he's written stuff like that. He wrote he wrote the seminal run of uh, Black Panther that they more or less based the whole shabam on about like he's with his vibranium yes. run up the wall shit. And Mark Teixeira was his artist on there. Uh, there's he is a real great example, and he he he's doing this thing with a uh, DC right now called Zero about this assassin. Basically, DC published it. And they let it go fallow, and he snatched the rights back up, and now they're making a movie out of it. So I just want to give special props to people who are like always been there. He used to be an editor back in the Power Man and Iron Fist days, yeah. And then he started writing, and then he becomes he calls himself Christopher Priest and does the writing on the early two thousands. So he's in the he's in the bullpen in the eighties, in the two thousands in the Marvel Knights, he revives Black Panther. There's these there's all these guys that are in the fucking walls. Of these yeah. companies, yes. keeping these characters and coming coming out occasionally and, and keeping these characters something that we're talking about. I think all these people are poor. Jimmy Palmiotti, fucking Jimmy yeah. Palmiotti, and fucking uh, Joe Casada taking Marvel Knights. So, so oh, there's so many people. So I, t- I'm saying that to say there are people that we missed. Mm-hmm. Fucking sorry, it's a giant thing. But overall, what what Bill and and Ron are saying is definitely correct. Put yourself on the page, uh, and and Bill talking about this historical time. It's the time of IP, but also the time that you could make your own IP. I think this is the dawn of the age of Aquarius of you being like, <laughs> I'll be able to make an IP and people will treat it the way they treat a Marvel or a DC IP. Obviously, that's never going to truly happen. It's like this motherfucker's trying to make vegan chicken happen. But at the same time, if you can get full on vegan chicken and you can make $1.50 or $10 for every 50 cents you were going to make selling your shit to another company. You might as well sell your fucking chicken out of the trunk. You might as well sell your fucking CD on the boardwalk. You might as well make all your money. 
and people learning that lesson. And I think Kirkman being at the end of this, yes. he learned that lesson. He never even tried. I think he wrote a couple of comics, maybe for other publishers. I don't he know that zombies. he really even tried. Yeah. But, but after he was already big. Yep. You know what I'm saying? I think he was already him doing that. his own independent. That's what I'm saying. But yep. him doing his own independent comics got him in a position to do Marvel Zombies. So it's just like, the, I think this is the dawn of the people making their own way. And I think yep. we they stand on the shoulders of the jobbers and the people who were 50% in and 50% out. Then we're going to see a lot more. Maybe it might go as far as 60-40. People in the future trying to make their own thing. Bill's trying to make his own thing. We're going to have Jeff Johnson on in a future episode trying to make his own thing. We at The Greatest Potter trying to make our own thing. And you need to make your own thing as in a mark on this world. You know how you do that? Leave a five-star review, <laughs> baby! Well, nice, Leave nice. a five-star review. That's your stamp Please on do. this earth, like a fucking wax print closing your fucking letter to us. Please uh, fucking send that. Uh, join our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash The Greatest Pod. Also, if you want to talk about making your own thing, I made a comedy album. It's called On the Wing of a Dragon. Please pick it up on Amazon or iTunes. Uh, stream it wherever it's streaming. You could look at it on YouTube. It, it all makes me a little bit of money, and I worked very hard to make it. So uh, please check that out. Hell yeah. So thanks for listening to another authentic, fiercely independent, cosmic and trippy episode of The Greatest Pod.